going to be in the book of Psalms this morning, Psalm 98. Psalm 98 is where we're going to be. Not really a traditional Christmas text, but my goal is that before we are done, uh, you'll be able to see just how great this text is for uh, the Advent season and how great it is for uh, Christmas as well, and really just for about uh, any time of the year. Psalm 98. So let's just jump right in and start reading Psalm 98 here. That will kind of set us up for the rest of our uh, our morning. Let's just see what it says here in Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre. Sing with, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, before the, king the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth, and he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. That is Psalm 98. Now when you read that, I'm going to guess that most of you don't think, well, that's a really good Christmas text. That's really great for Christmas. Merry Christmas to, to all of us as we read that. It's probably not what you think. It doesn't have the same kind of sentimental vibes of the traditional Christmas stories with wise men and angels and shepherds and Mary and Joseph and all of those type of things. Uh, but it can help us see some things about Christmas that can kind of get lost in the more traditional text, get lost in a little bit of that sentimentality. Uh, and, and, but we'll get to a couple of those kind of more familiar Christmas stories here in just a few minutes. But I think, I think if we understand what's going on here in Psalm 98, then we're going to understand a little bit more about what is happening in those stories. So we, while we may not read this psalm and think, Christmas, there is definitely one person that did. At least kind of did. Does anyone know who made this song? I'm not going to say who made this song famous because that's God, right? Uh, you, can't, you can't say that. But does anybody know who popularized this psalm in a way that you know very well? Anybody know where, this, where, where you might have heard this psalm in some other words? All right, so this psalm is the basis for joy to the world. This psalm is where joy to the world came from. So when Isaac Watts wrote the poem from which we get the music for joy to the world, he had in mind a couple of different things. One of them being Christmas, but really even more so than that, what he had in mind was the second coming of Christ. So while joy to the world is about the first coming of Christ, it is about Christmas, it's primarily about the second coming of Christ. And you can see that in the lyrics, but this psalm is the same way. This psalm is actually referring to several different things. It's kind of three or four layers deep. That's the way that psalms can work sometimes. It's the way prophecy can work in the Bible. So we're going to work through, we're going to work through all of that. And it can, we can draw uh, a, a, a lot from it. So what this psalm does is what you can see in a lot of different places. It takes historical events... It describes those historical events, then uses the language of those events to make broader application to God, to make broader application to something that is happening in the nearer future, and then something that is happening in the distant future. 
And it says all that in the same, the same stanzas, the same lyrics, the same words. And so what happens is when you read it, it all kind of flattens out. And it can get a little bit confusing. Like, what is the psalmist talking about here? What are they prophesying about? What is this about? And so it all kind of flattens out. This is what they call prophetic foreshortening. Now, you don't need to know that, but if you want to look it up, this is what it's called. And what it is, it's, it's the same way as if you're looking at a mountain range. All right? If you're looking at a mountain range and you're far away from the mountain range, what you see is several different peaks, and you can tell they're not like completely in the same distance apart, but they look like they're basically right next to each other. But whenever you actually get close to the mountains, what you realize is that this peak is here, that other peak is way back here. So from your perspective, it looked the same, right? But what you find out is they're actually way far apart. This is how the psalmist works here in Psalm 98. He's talking about three, maybe four different events, just depending on how you, you kind of break some of this down. And it looks like he's talking about one big thing. But really, he's talking about three or four different things. I know I've lost some of you already, but hang with me. If you come, come back with me, I promise you we'll get there, and, and I'll, I'll see if we can't, can't get some of you back. So Psalm 98, verse 1, it says, O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. First thing you need to know about this psalm, it's, called, it's an enthronement psalm. So there's different types of psalms, royal psalms, but this is a little bit different. This is an enthronement psalm. It's about the king, but not just about the king. It's specifically about the moment when the king ascends to the throne. When he goes and he takes his place. And this is the things that are said about this king as he takes his place on the throne. That he is a good king. That he is a righteous king. He's no ordinary king. In fact, this king that is, the psalmist is talking about is God himself ascending to his throne. And this picture is all of God's people uh, ascribing praise to him as he takes his rightful place. Okay? So this is what's happening in this psalm. And so, verse 1 is kind of a stage setter. It's vague enough that it, you, you could just about apply it to anything that God has done. We're not given the specific reference that the psalmist has in mind. We don't even know if he has one specific thing in mind. But it's a simple response of worship and praise for the marvelous deeds that God has done. This marvelous thing that God has done. Now, whenever you see that kind of language, especially in the Old Testament, the marvelous things he's done, you see this in the Christmas story too, what marvelous things he has done, particularly what is, it, it's kind of an understated way of saying, look at this miraculous, awe-inspiring, big, huge, unforeseen moment that God showed up and came through. So that's what's meant whenever he, he says this here. So you think about something big. Maybe the psalmist is referring to the, the crossing of the Red Sea. That would be a common thing to refer back to and to look to. It's that kind of idea. The psalmist is, look, is looking at this and he's saying, look at what God has done by his own power. Like that, That's the whole thing. So let's keep reading here in verse 2 and 3. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So the psalmist continues his praise, continues kind of pouring out this praise for God, celebrating the work that God has done. At the same time, he's reminding us that God has saved his people, and his people had nothing to do with it. 
His people simply went forth in the way that God had provided. The saving is God's doing. It is his arm that saved them. It is his work that saved his people. And as a result, the people of Israel have been reminded of the love and the faithfulness of God. Not only that, as the nations looked on and saw what happened, again, you could, you could put this into the context of the, the crossing of the Red Sea and the Exodus, or you could put it into, uh, you could put it into uh, like maybe the story of Jericho and uh, the fall of Jericho. You could put it into all kinds of different things. As the nations looked on, they too saw the strength and faithfulness of God. This wasn't just a message for God's people, but as they see the, uh, the, the, the king uh, ascend to his throne, this is a king that is known for his deeds, both to the people of Israel and to the nations that watched. And so you can sum up this first stanza. I'm going to give you three, uh, three different kind of s- summation uh, phrases for each stanza, right? So uh, the first one, you can sum up this stanza as the sovereign savior. The sovereign savior. The next stanza takes on a bit of a different focus. It shifts its gears just a little bit. And the idea of joy, what we've been talking about this month, really kind of bursts through in these verses. Let's just read them again, four through six. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of the melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. So the psalmist just bursts out into unabashed praise here. His response to this God that has done these great things is just praise. Uh, Sing songs. Get the instruments out. Do whatever you can to offer up the praise. He calls for all of this to be done in honor of this king as he ascends to his throne. So you can think of the idea of a king walking and an an, an aisle or an altar as he heads to the, the throne to take his seat. And these songs are being sung about how great he is and how wonderful he is. Now, what's interesting is, is the, the type of song this is. It doesn't just say, strike up the band and sing the songs. It doesn't just say, play hell to the chief as the president walks in the room. Because when you, pray, when you, when you play hell to the chief when the president walks in the room, that is a... Uh, a song that kind of announces the presence of the, the, the president, announces the presence of somebody that is important, kind of what's due the, the title and the honor of this person. So that's good. But the thing about like playing hell to the chief whenever you play that, it's not inherently a joyful song, right? That's not the idea that is being, what's being communicated is power, authority, this man who has this, this place here. But what the psalmist calls for is not just a song that, that recognizes authority. What the psalmist calls for is a song of joy. This is a good thing that the king is taking his throne. This is a good thing that the king is, is, is ascending to his place. And you should be joyful in the music that you make. You should not just be singing the song, announcing his, his kingship. You should be doing so with joy. It is a big difference in the idea that is here. A measure of joy is required. This is not just a pay the man his due type of song. It's a song in full celebration of the king that kind of rises up from within you. I remember when I would uh, go to UT football games whenever I was uh, when I was a kid and in high school and in 
uh, college, at, at, back then, they won almost every game that they played, especially games that were at home. They won a lot of them. And I remember going to those games, and, you know, it's one thing, like, when they score a touchdown, you sing Rocky Top, that's good. But what I, some of the memories that are etched into my brain the most is when the game is over, everybody starts to file out, especially after the, a, a big win or a kind of last-minute win. Um, as you're filing out and you're making your way down the ramps that crisscross back and forth out of Neyland Stadium, inevitably what will happen with no prompting from anyone is a chant will break out. A chant will break out and they'll say, it's great to be a Tennessee Vol. And you just say that over and over and over and over and over and over. That is a song of joy when that happens, right? So you are excited when you are doing that. You are not singing that because you have to give honor to the team that won. You are singing that because you're happy. You're singing that because you are joyful. It comes up from within you. This is the kind of song that the psalmist is talking about. This is a wonderful thing that we are witnessing. This is a great and joyful thing. It's great that he is the king. It's great that he is ascending to his throne. That is the idea that the psalmist wants to communicate here. Not just giving reverence, but they're full of, enjoy, of, of joy at the enthronement of the king. So my question for you this morning is how do we get to that place? How do we get to the place where joy is what drives us as we sing our songs? Where joy is what drives us as we open our scriptures? Where joy is what drives us as we move towards Christmas? How do we get to that place? How do we bring that level of joy into our own lives. And I think this final stanza will honestly kind of push that idea a little bit further, make that idea even a little bit more difficult. But we can put over the second stanza, so the first one was uh, sovereign, uh, was uh, the sovereign savior. The second stanza is a praiseworthy king. A praiseworthy king. So that's, that's our two stanzas that we've got here so far. Now let's read the final stanza. Look at the final stanza. Psalm 98, verse 7. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes. And if you stop right there, what do you think is coming next? Let's sing for joy. Let, I mean, you, you listen to what the psalmist is, is, is calling for. The sea roar, all that fills it. The world and those of us who dwell in it. The rivers clap their hands. The hills sing for joy because here comes God who is going to do what? What do you think, what, what did you think would come after that? What, you would, what I would think would be if the psalmist were to say, as he builds this big crescendo, here comes this God who is who is kind, let us be joyful. Here comes this God who is merciful, let us be joyful. Here comes this king who is great and awesome, let us be joyful. But this is where things get a little bit weird in this psalm for us. And it kind of takes a weird turn. And the idea of, of, of these two things going together doesn't make any sense to us. Because he's going to talk about what the king has come to do and it's not going to be because the king is nice and benevolent, but he comes to judge. Read the rest of it with me. Let the sea roar, all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it, the rivers clap their hands, the hills sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He 
He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. This makes no sense to us. Joy and judgment do not go together. Joy and judgment are not things that we marry together. In fact, those things are quite often at odds with one another in, in, our, in our minds. You can't say, here comes, the, here comes the judge, yes! Like, those don't go together. You don't clap your hands and sing and get out the instruments because the, the judge is coming to judge. Unless, of course, we're the one that's been wronged. And then we do want a righteous judge. Unless, of course, we're the one that's been sinned against. We're the one that's been harmed. And then we do want a righteous judge to walk into that court, courtroom. We want a judge that's going to come out and he's going to dole out justice the way that it should be. And so, so, so we're not excited about a judge that's coming to judge us, but we will be excited about a judge that's coming to judge others. Those that we rightfully think deserve the judgment. The psalmist sees this judge, this righteous judge that is coming as an occasion for unabashed, unhindered joy. And that's what this king promises to be, righteous and good. But how is this good news? It it says, let let the world and those who dwell in it. It talks in this psalm about the nations recognizing the, 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 the power and the authority of who God is. How is this good news for the nations? How can the world shout for joy, all that fill it, shout for joy as the judge ascends to his throne? Short answer, it is not good news at all. It is not joyful at all. This is not good news for the world. Now, it is good in the sense that that he is coming to do this, but it is not good for them. When you are guilty, the arrival of a judge is not good news. So this last stanza ends, and it's a bit incomplete. It doesn't tell us the full picture. It's missing a statement or two. So we're going to fill in this blank here in just a second. But what we know about this king from this psalm, He's fair, he's just, he's righteous. And in that, we are to find joy. And not only that, when the the psalmist sees that this king is coming, he's coming to establish a kingdom, he's coming to establish a kingdom, you're driving me nuts, uh, where, where things are set right, where the righteous prevail. Do you see that very last line? Where he will judge the people's with equity. So what we see is that the kingdom this king is coming to set up, the kingdom that this king is coming to establish, this kingdom is where things are made right. Where all that is wrong with the world is is corrected. Where the kingdom he establishes is how things should be. And what we know about this world and this earth is that things are not as they should be. But when the king sets up his kingdom, things will be as they should be. Do you guys know the, the, uh, the Christmas carol or the, 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 the poem, um, the, the Bells of Christmas? You, you guys know that? This is a poem written by uh, Longfellow. 
And if you, I, I love, uh, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. I couldn't remember the whole, the whole name of it. It's, it's one of my favorite ones to listen to. It's so good because it goes through these several stanzas. And the, 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 the singer, the author, is despondent on what he's seen. Because what he has seen is, is, is a world full of wickedness, a world full of evil, a world full of terrible things where the world is not as it should be. He's completely despondent. He can't find no joy anywhere because of the terrible things that he's seen. But then when he hears the bells, he's reminded of who God is. And that last stanza says, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. So what gives him encouragement? What gives him joy? What lifts him up out of this this doldrum and this pessimism that he is? He remembers God is alive. The king is on his throne. And when the king is on his throne, the wrong shall fail and the right prevail. All that is wrong will will be shown for what it is. And all that's right will conquer and will lead and will 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 be in its proper place. Things will be as they should be. And that's what pulls him out of his sadness and brings him joy. Because he remembers things will be as they should be. The same thing that gives Longfellow joy and hope in this poem is the same thing that gives the psalmist joy in this psalm. Because he sees the, the, the wrongs will be righted. Things will be set the way that they should be. The evil don't prosper. They meet their right judgment. The king has come to set up his kingdom and make things right. So this stanza we can mark with the overarching title, The Righteous Judge. So you take those three together. The sovereign savior, the praiseworthy king, the righteous judge. You take those three together and then we can start to put together why... Isaac Watts can see this and see joy to the world, and we too can say that. So now turn with me to the book of Luke. Let's get to some more of those more familiar Christmas texts, and let's fill in a few blanks that the psalmist leaves for us here. Book of Luke, chapter 1. The angel comes, talk to Mary. Luke, chapter 1, verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And I want you to listen with the words of this enthronement psalm echoing in, your, in your, the back of your head here. Listen to what this angel says. He will, be cra- he will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So the angel comes and says, you will have this child, you will name him Jesus, and he will take over the throne from the house of David as it was promised, as it was prophesied. He would come and he would take over, and now Jesus, as this king who is enthroned, as the psalmist says in Psalm 98, will become this sovereign savior, this praiseworthy king, and this righteous judge. He was coming to set up a kingdom that would have no end. So whenever this kingdom sets up his throne, whenever this kingdom come and es- or this king comes and establishes his kingdom, it has no end. Where the world is made right, when all that is wrong is set to be corrected, and whenever things are as they should be, that kingdom will have no end as Jesus sits up over that kingdom. Now turn with me to Luke chapter 1. 
verse 68. We move from Mary over to Zechariah. Now I'm going to read this, this entire thing. It's called Zechariah's Benedictus. I'm going to read this entire thing. And again, I want you to hear, I want you to read this here, listen to this with the words of Psalm 98 echoing in the back of your head. Blessed be the Lord, this is Luke 168. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. Does that sound familiar? Like maybe the first stanza of Psalm, of Psalm 98? Sounds awful similar language there. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. It's Psalm 98. It's the first stanza just fleshing it out right here. That we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. So he's talking about John the Baptist, who will go before to prepare the way of the Lord, to give knowledge, <coughs> to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Wait a minute. That doesn't sound like Psalm 98 anymore. He will go to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So you hear the echoes of Psalm 98 as Zechariah offers up this prayer, as he uh, puts this out there. You, you hear it, and you, and, 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 and you can see the, the parallels, but then at the end, his prophecy kind of takes a bit of a turn. And what happens here, Zechariah fills in the blank for us of Psalm 98. Because here's the deal. The end of Psalm 98 is not good news for us. The righteous judge is coming is not good news for the unrighteous. That's us. So that is not joy-inducing. So something has to give, something has to intervene in order for that to become a joyful thing for us. So the prophecy from Zechariah, the praise that he offers is that, yes, he will be a righteous king, but he will also be a merciful king. He will serve, he, he will serve in holiness and righteousness, but he will also forgive us of our sins. This is the final stanza of joy to the world. He rules the world with truth and grace. And then he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of of his love the wonders of his love friends this morning what we celebrate here together is the wonders of his love we celebrate what jesus did as he came to live here among us to begin the 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 the, the early the, the inauguration the bringing of that kingdom that will have no end he came to begin to establish that and where things were, were wrong, he came to set them right. A kingdom where righteousness reigns. And we sing with joy the king that has come to live with us, to save us, and to make right all that has gone wrong. As the Jesus Storybook Bible says, to make right, to, to establish a kingdom where all the sad things come untrue.
But make no mistake about it, there is no joy for those who are not righteous. In a world that is set right, in a kingdom where the righteousness reigns and where all is corrected and set as it should be, that is not good news for sinners. Those that have pursued paths of sin and selfishness, of rebellion and regret, of self-exaltation and self-indulgence, there is no joy that you can sing of this morning. When the Lord comes, you will not sing joy to the world. You will say, woe is me, just like Isaiah did when he was met with his unrighteousness. Which is why Zechariah's words are so wonderful for us this morning. Because if we are in Christ, we are no longer found to be unrighteous. His righteousness becomes ours. Our sin is given to him. The sin isn't excused. The sin isn't dismissed. The king is still righteous. He still exacts judgment for the sin. It's just Jesus that receives the judgment, not us. And so we say joy to the world because that is what awaits us in Christ. We welcome his coming because he is not coming to condemn us. He is coming to rescue us. He is not coming to cast us out, but he is coming to welcome us in. That is what joy is awaiting us. This is what the psalmist sees. And he doesn't explain all of it and lay it all out. That it, either he doesn't see it or understand how it's going to work, but what he knows is a righteous king is a thing that is joyful for us. And it's not until we get to the, the it's not until we get to the New Testament, it's not until we get the, to the, the, the stories of Christmas and we start to find out, oh, I see how this works. This works because the king stands in our place. This works because, because this is what Jesus has come to do. So what is it for you this morning? Can you sing joy to the world this morning? Is it joy to your world this morning? Or is it woe? Don't leave here this morning apart from Christ. He will be enthroned as king. That will happen. And either that moment will be a moment of praise at that, at that juncture when that happens. You will be there to lift up praise just like the psalmist in Psalm 98. You will, you will shout for joy. Or you will be condemned in judgment. But he is coming. Even as we wait today, he is coming. We light these candles here in, in remembrance of how he came the first time, but in anticipation of how he is coming again. What will that day be for you? Christmas is for us a down payment on the, the, the time when Jesus will come to reign. So this morning, as we talk and as we look at this idea of joy, I pray that this, uh, these few weeks of Advent as we head towards Christmas, that you will be able to sing 
uh, of the joy that you have in Christ. That you, we, would, we would be able to sing songs like Joy to the World or O Come, O Come, Emmanuel as, as we sing Rejoice, Rejoice because your King has come. I, I pray that you would be able to sing those songs not as, as songs of like remembrance or of this kind of sticky sentimentality where it's just all syrupy sweet and you get lost in it. I pray that as you sing these songs about rejoicing and joy, it would well up within you. Far more than anything that you would sing as you walk out of a, out of a, out of a stadium. It would well up within you to say, this joy is pouring out of me because of what you have done. So, Father, help me to enthrone enthrone you in my own heart the way this psalmist sees things. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning it is our confession together that far too often we expect this level of praise for us as we ascend to our own throne in our hearts. Far too often we sit on that throne. It is the default position for every one of us. So, Father, we confess that this morning, that we are not kings. We are desperately in need of a righteous king and a righteous savior. So, Father, we praise you for your righteousness. And we beg for your mercy. Thank you for the story of Christmas to know that as we ask for mercy, you have already done the work to grant it.